It's good to be with you this morning, and uh, I'm going to be closing off this epic piece of scripture <clears throat> in Luke chapter 16, 15 and 16, where Jesus <clears throat> is defending his ministry. And uh, there are five parables in total, and uh, <clears throat> remember, sorry, I have a bit of a, let's get a glass, a bottle of water. That's okay, thanks. Um, <clears throat> Luke chapter 15, verse 1 and 2, is a criticism which is leveled at Jesus for two things. And uh, just to recap, you've heard this four times before. But the first is that the kind of people Jesus was attracting were not the kind of people that were acceptable to the religious society in Israel. In actual fact, I must make this statement, is that his preaching touched a nerve of brokenness in Israel that resonated with those that really needed God. And I want to say this morning again, the mark of God's hand upon this pulpit, thank you so much, Shane. Thank you. The mark of God's hand upon this pulpit and church is not the lights, it's not the funny jokes or humor, the mark is how accessible Jesus is to anybody, no matter race, color, creed, or where they are in their life as they're walking through these doors. It's the gospel, Christ's ministry, it ministers into brokenness and need. And Jesus was not interested in a fancy face. That's what the Pharisees loved. Remember Jesus said, you whitewashed tombs. Imagine being called a grave, bit of an offensive term. On the outside, they looked so good, but inwardly they were dead. Friends, the life of Jesus operating in a church is the evidence of broken people finding wholeness in Christ on a regular basis. The second thing that Jesus was criticized for is his not only professional ministry to these kind of uh, sinners and tax collectors, in his personal capacity, he went after them in his friendships. And friends, that is what a missional church is. And so maybe you've only seen one model of church before where the preacher does all the work of evangelism. So you bring your friend along and you kind of hope he hits the sweet spot. That's how I grew up. Jesus models what a missional life is. It's inviting people into community, but also building friendship in order to introduce faith. And each of us are responsible for that. And so that's the model Jesus sets. And the Pharisees don't like it. And I want to give a very quick overview of how Jesus defends his ministry. It's awesome. He starts off with the parable of the lost sheep and coin. And he says, you know, in his audience, they were farmers. They were rural guys. There was nothing sophisticated about the people that heard Jesus. Most of them probably couldn't or didn't have a very high level of education. But he says, if you as farmers lost one sheep, you would leave the 99 to go after the one. He said, cause, talks about a lady who loses one silver coin. She searches everywhere to find the one. And he starts off his defense by saying, if that's how much you value one sheep or one lost coin, how immeasurably more valuable is one human life to the Lord? And maybe that's for you this morning. You might be feeling you're in the wilderness. You're lost. 
you just feel you can't find a way forward and you don't even quite know why you're here today, I want to say to you, God's eyes on you. You are immeasurably valuable to the Lord. So valuable that I will go as far as to say this, that if you were the only person on earth, Christ still would have come to die for you. The second is, he knows Jesus is preaching to a crowd where there were people who had a relationship with God, but had fallen into sin, and it's what we call backslide, backsliders, backslidden. And he tells us about a prodigal son who was in the father's household, who knew the father, loved the father, but because of sin and temptation, he begins to wander far from God. And maybe that's you this morning. And coming into church is a bit of a panic experience for you because you know you need God, but you're not quite sure if he's going to receive you because of your history. And so in actual fact, it's a bit of a, a state of flux for you because you are nervous about coming to God in worship and presenting yourselves because, because of your track record, you're not too sure if God's really going to receive you. Jesus says to you this morning, you can come home is that the Father will always deal with you based on your position of being a son and daughter in his household. You're never a servant. And for you, you can know that the love of God will welcome you in unconditionally. But he aims his sight at the Pharisees. He knows that this gracious preaching offended them. That's important for you to know. Sometimes it's so good to be offended by the grace of God. Do you know why it displays that actually we are insecure in the love of the Father? Do you know why? It is because deep down inside we believe that it is because of how well we are doing, we are being received by Him. And that is a terrible place to live from. Because let me tell you, the standards are impossible to keep. And so Jesus said to the Pharisees, don't you know that you're just as insecure as the prodigal son is? Because the prodigal son is insecure, because of the fact that he is not performing very well, the older brother is insecure because of the fact that he believes God's or the father's acceptance of him is conditional based on how well he is serving or doing. Both are insecure. And Jesus said, don't you know, Pharisees, that the Father receives you on the basis of your position as children. My daughter will never stop being my daughter. Whether she wanders far, whether she's close at home, She's mine. And it is the same with the Father to you. And God <laughs> is saying to us this morning, you need to feel secure in the love of the Father. He is never going to treat you as a servant. He's only going to love you as a son and daughter. It is a marvelous place to live from. And then I preached two weeks ago on the parable of Lazarus and the rich man where Jesus defends his reason for hanging out with these kinds of people. He says, don't you know Pharisees? There is such a place as heaven and hell. 
that unless these people are reached out to you, unless they encounter the word of life, eternity is at stake. And so I'm going after them because they are not in the, the space or realm of hearing the salvation message of the redemption of God. In this space, they are far from God, and I'm going after them because you know why? Eternity is at stake. And I ask the question, are you ready for heaven? And I want to do a good job this morning on behalf of the Lord. I want to ask you, are you ready for heaven? Because the moment's going to come. I didn't tell you two weeks ago, but the, I preached this message at the Ridge. And five days later, a close friend of ours in our soul group died in a car crash. And I want to say to you this morning, she was ready. Are you And if you are, is your family, are your colleagues, are your friends? The fifth parable is very special this morning. And <laughs> uh, it is the most difficult commentator say that Jesus preached. And I do feel it this morning. So there's going to be a little bit more detail than usual. And I'm praying for God to give me grace to keep it clear. But this one's special because there is one group of people Jesus has not addressed yet in the whole crowd, and it's his disciples. He's tackled the Pharisees. He's tackled those who are feeling lost, far from God. He's tackled those that are um, feeling backslidden in their faith. But now he wants to join close those who are following Jesus. They know that this is their master. So let's read together in Luke chapter 16, verse 1. He also said to his disciples, that's very important, to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is going to take the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. Ah, I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. This is what he does, verse 5. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And the debtor answered, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another debtor, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. So he said to him, take your bill and write 80. And this is the master's response, verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, Jesus says, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, 
who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. Not always so clear on the first reading, right? So if you're really confused, that's okay. <laughs> We're going to sort that out. Because the problem with this parable is, it seems like Jesus is condoning dishonesty. It seems like saying, in order to get out of the pickle you're in, you need to kind of crook the books in order to save your own skin. And I think the problem is that the actual title of the parable is a bit harsh, or I don't, I don't quite agree with. In my ESV, it is put it in there by the editor. It says, the parable of the dishonest manager. I don't think that's correct. I think it should be the shrewd manager. And shrewdness is sharp powers of judgment or astuteness. And the reason why I argue that is because what the manager did to get out of trouble was not illegal. He had full power from his master to manage all of the accounts in the way he saw fit. And so he was dishonest or neglectful in his track record with the books. That's why there's an audit called. But in getting out of trouble, he didn't do anything illegal. And so I would put it to you that it should be called the shrewd manager. And the purpose of this parable comes down to stewardship. Now, a steward was somebody who was placed in authority over an estate by a rich aristocratic dude that wanted to play golf and go shipping and enjoy holidays and the, the courts. He didn't want the nitty-gritty management of an estate in his own hands. So he appoints someone else as his representative. It's a bit like an estate agent who collects rent on behalf of the owner. And what the purpose of this parable unpacks is this massive theme of stewardship in the context for the Christian. Now, it's important I make that distinction because whether you are a Christian or not here this morning, is you are still using God's stuff. <laughs> because the reality is, everything, that shirt on your back, that car you drove, that food that you ate this morning, it belongs to God. And so... Can I be as honest and frank as this? Is God is going to call the auditing books for your life, whether you are saved or not, because ultimately we are living off his stuff. In actual fact, your body, mind, eyes, everything that you are is God's. And that's what Romans 1 says, is when he calls to account the world, he's going to call them to account of what they have done with his stuff. But the stewardship I want to talk about today is for the Christian. And it's important because this stewardship plays out in two ways. Jesus said, we have to steward two things well as his followers in this life. The first is, as followers of Jesus, we are stewards of God's reputation on earth. That's the first thing. I explain why this is important. 
The second thing is connected, and we're going to see there's a spiritual connection to this stewarding of God's reputation on earth. It is how we steward his stuff, and in particular, money. And there is a spiritual connection to both. And I will tag team a little bit of what Joe said with Joe, what he said last week Sunday, but I want to expand on this fact of stewarding money being connected to the way we steward God's reputation. And so in order to explain the first point of why, as Christians, we are called to steward God's reputation, I have to unpack the cleverness of this manager. He is so smart. I would never have thought of this. He is very, very astute. What he does is, quick rehash, is the master finds out that this guy has been sloppy. And he has not been a faithful steward of his possessions. And he, this guy's got a lot of stuff. He's a rich man. And so he calls for an audit. And when the books get called for, or as the books are getting called for, this guy knows, this boss is going to find me out any moment. He's going to see the depths of my own neglectfulness. And so in the time between the boss finding the final verdict and him first being investigated, he's got a window of opportunity to try and prepare for the future. And what he does is brilliant because he knows, and I can totally sympathize with him, he cannot do manual labor. I mean, I would be in the same, digging, beating, carrying, there's just no hope, right? He's also too proud to beg. So he goes, I can't do any of those options. What I'll do is I'll hedge my bets. I know how my master ticks. And what he does is brilliant. He calls in the debtors who don't know that he's under investigation. They think this guy's legit, that he is the representative of the master. What he says is what the master has commanded him to do. And what he does is this. He says, how much do you owe the master? Slash it by 50%. He's being generous to you. Great. The person goes, this guy's amazing. Second time, second one comes in. How much do you owe? Slash it by 20%. He's smart. Why? Because it makes his manager or his master look good. And secondly, he gets in on the guys he's helping. He knows if he has to call in a favor, if things don't go down well, he'll be all right. I can explain it like this to you. How many of you have home loans? I do. A bond. You can put up your hand. <laughs> Some of us are early in our home loans, and they can be rather painful, not so? Especially if there is an interest rate hike, which has been happening steadily for the last five years. Imagine your bank manager called you and said, Hello, I'll use you again, Ali, Mrs. Kessels. We're going to slash your home loan by 50%. Gratis, free. Bank manager did it, right? What's she going to think? She's going to think, that bank is incredible on social media. My bank has just slashed my home loan by 50%. Everybody she meets, she's going to rant about how awesome her bank is. Not so? I would do that. And you would bank with them for life. Not so? They might give you, increase your monthly bank charge by maybe 10% each, each year. No problem. You slashed 50%. I'm in. What would happen... If, you got a, if Ali got a phone call five days later from the executive to say, oh, we have made a mistake. We are putting 500,000 rand back onto your account. How are you going to feel? You will be livid. Don't be all Christian on me now. You will be so angry that you will want to take them to court. 
and you, you'll say this, I know you record all those conversations. You tell me every time I've got to wait five minutes before I get, in, get, in, get to speak to a consultant. Please note that for training and security purposes, all calls are recorded. You'll go to that ombudsman and you will cause such a stink. And what will you do? Say, I am closing my account. That's what you'll do. And I will never recommend you to anybody else ever. Isn't this guy smart? Guys, the moral of the story is this. Is that as Christians, our role is to make our master in heaven look great to the world. We are stewards of our master's reputation. Now, I know if you like me, and I said, when the second you come to Christ, God literally thrusts you into the world so that when the world sees your life, they will connect that to Jesus. You will go, is God crazy? Well, I, I hope you do because that's the way I feel. But Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew chapter 5, he says, you Christians, you are the light of the world. A city set on a, set on a hill cannot be hidden. You might try to hide under the, under the covers of trying to keep your, your private life, your faith private, but God is saying, that's not what I've saved you for. I've saved you to be a display of grace to the world. And he says, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to the whole house. We illuminate the love of God to the world. And this is it in verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That his reputation gets great glory. Can I say it like this? And let it just sink in. It is the most glorious privilege that the God of heaven wants to be associated with you. That the God of heaven wants to be associated with you. And that, for me, is going, whoa. Maybe you've made a mistake, Lord, because if you know what I'm really like... I don't want to be out on that hill. I don't want to be on that lampstand. The weight of bearing an infinite, pure, holy God's reputation on the shoulders of a fallible, fleshly, finite human life, it is just too much. And I guarantee that when you hear that, if you really unpack it of what that means, you feel the same. Because if you look back over your track record, it is anything but perfect. Not so? But I want to say to you this morning, the reason why God can demand that of us is because of the confidence he has in what salvation has achieved in you and me. I want to just say to you this morning, how big is your view of what God has done in your life through faith in Jesus Christ? If you think he's just kind of taken the old Matt Johnson or the old Judy or whoever it is, your name, and kind of washed you on the outside, slumped you into a, a new kind of set of rules and then loaded this massive responsibility onto the same carnal shoulders that was before. 
my friend, you do not understand the width, height, and breadth of what Jesus has done in you the second you came to faith. Is the Father is so confident in the work that he has achieved in your life that he says, I can call this out of you because of what I've put in you. And can I just quickly unpack that this morning? The work of Jesus in your life has caused you to literally be born again with a living hope and that this new birth through the blood of Jesus has canceled the power of sin in your life so that you are no longer a slave to sin. It has taken away all of the past, brought an entirely new future, and not only that, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, I'll say it again, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is at work inside of you. There is power in the position of what a Christian receives by grace. And if you're thinking that this bearing of God's reputation is heavy, my friend, it is resting on the shoulders of what Christ has done in you. And this morning, you need to know that what God has deposited and started in your life, it is more powerful than anything you will face, whether it be temptation or in this world. What does it say? Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And so this call to bear God's reputation comes on the foundation of this glorious gospel and how it empowers us. Because what I'm going to say is very important now. It is this is that the way you and I live and speak is the picture of what the world has of God. You and I are the living witness and evidence of who God is to the world. That's amazing. And this comes with this amazing privilege of being invited to get to know the one we're called to represent. Have you ever thought about this? If God is calling you to be a witness to who he is, how can you do that if you don't know him? And this is what Jesus says in Luke chapter 16, verse 8. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. What that means is this. He says, guys, disciples, earthly people, earthly employees like you and me know how our bosses tick, right? We know what, like, what they like and what they don't. You get to know how to operate in a way that pleases your boss. He said, the problem is this, is that the sons of light, Christians, don't know their master in heaven. And the challenge of bearing the reputation of God comes with the privilege and the call to live a passionate life to know the one who saved you. And I'll put it to you like this. You can only be a steward of God's reputation 
You can only steward that well to the degree that you know him. And so I ask you this morning, what is motivating your life? Because when we're going to get to what is the big competitor of having a life set on knowing God and Jesus. It is money. That's why the two are connected. But for the Christian, I have to just nudge a little bit this morning and ask you, what are you consumed with at the moment? Because Paul said, the right response to salvation is not just an initial satisfaction and settling in a primary, almost immature understanding of the gospel. No, no. When that massive radical work of the Spirit happens in a Christian, we are called to discover the fullness of the one who saved us. And Paul puts it like this. He says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Do you want to know why the Pharisees did such a poor job of representing their father or their master in heaven that they claimed to serve? It was because they were motivated by money. Their interest was not getting to know God and representing him well. Their motivation was how can they line their pockets with the best wealth? And that's what Jesus said. In verse 14, it says, The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. Jesus says to the Pharisees, If you really knew your master in heaven, you would welcome these sinners and tax collectors. Why? Because your master in heaven is one of mercy, and he loves to cancel debt. And so what Jesus is fighting for here is that God needs to be represented well. And what these Pharisees were doing was damaging that reputation by misrepresenting whom they claimed to serve. And I want to say this morning, this is a serious thing for the Christian. Because there is something at stake if we do not pursue Christ and keep Him as the cornerstone of our motivation and building in this life. There was a generation in Israel that was saved, the first generation out of Egypt. They witnessed the marvelous acts of God. They put their faith in the blood of the Passover lamb. But God said this about them in Psalm 95, verse 10 to 11. He says, For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Everything God does in your life is to get you to know Him. And He wants that reflection of engaging with Him and growing in Him to overflow to the world around us. And because that generation did not know or get to know God or learn His ways, God took an oath and said, They shall not enter my rest. They did not achieve their inheritance. And so this morning, I want to encourage you with the first major challenge, which is how passionate 
and focused are you in desiring to know Jesus more? The level to which you are in love with him, seeking him, enjoying him, will be the level to which you steward his reputation well to the people around you. Stewardship comes from the overflow of the heart. And there's a fight on for our hearts, church. The fight is, major one is, our relationship with money. Jesus connects the two. And remember, it's to his disciples. He says, well, Jesus himself actually preached on money a whole lot more than what we do. For good reason. Because for the Christian, money can become a substitute for God. Money, falsely, can provide the function that God himself wants to do solely in our lives. And he warns that one of the greatest dangers or hindrances or competitors to getting to know and live for God is the way we relate to money. And this is exactly what the problem with the Pharisees were. They were lovers of money. And so when Jesus came before them, presenting the truth, they ridiculed him. And Jesus wants his disciples to know, and this is very important this morning for us, is that there is a spiritual connection to the way we relate to our wealth. Jesus puts it like this in Luke chapter 16, verse 9. He says, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. What he means by that unrighteous wealth, or mammon, some translations, is the wealth that you get to enjoy this side of the grave, it's of the fallen world. You cannot take any of it into the righteous eternity that's waiting for the Christian. And he says you have to think spiritually about money because there is such a place as an eternal dwelling. He also talks about in Luke chapter 16, verse 11, if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? He says our relationship and the way that we steward money has a direct spiritual impact in our lives. The two are not separate. The way we relate to money reflects our spiritual state as Christians. And so Jesus wants us to think about this carefully, this connection. The first reason why Jesus wants us to see this spiritual connection is that he says our wealth, this side of the grave, doesn't matter how much you have, you might have a lot or little, it's got a full stop. He says in Luke chapter 19, 16, verse 9, he says, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, and that's what Joe touched on last week, there's going to be a moment when our wealth will cease. It's not actually ours. It's our stewardship of what God has entrusted to us, this side of the grave. It will have a full stop. And so he says, Christians, be careful of what motivates you, because if you invest in unrighteous wealth as your primary motivation, it is going to fail. And it, the status it gives you this side of the grave will bear no uh, effect or will have no impact on the status you have on the other side. So don't get deceived. This wealth will fail. Secondly, he says, we have to think about the wealth that we have in the light of heaven, these eternal dwellings or true riches. 
And can I just quickly throw this in? The more I read the preaching of Jesus, the more I see how he constantly takes eternity and uses it as the filter to shape the way we live on earth. And this is the principle of the parable. The shrewd manager used his earthly wealth to his advantage. How much more the Christian is to use his worldly wealth for his eternal advantage. Friends, the way we steward money will determine how we enter into heaven. Notice I didn't say if we enter into heaven. You are there by the grace of God. If you are a Christian, you are already on the citizenship role of heaven. But each Christian enters heaven in a different degree of glory. And how we steward our wealth this side of the grave will determine the true riches, the reward for faithfulness, the honor that God is going to give in the next. And so it, it is serious in the way God calls us to think about the cash that we have. The next point I want to make as to how we are to steward our money is that we can be Christians but still be mastered by it. Remember, this is to the disciples. And Jesus said in verse 13 of chapter 16, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And the reason for this is because money is the first substitute we go to for God. We can find our security, our status and identity and value, as well as satisfaction of our appetites through money. And God says to the Christian and to the world, there is only one place you find that in, and that is in Him. Security, identity, satisfaction comes from God, not His stuff. And the seriousness of our relationship to money as Christians is this, is that how we live will sooner or later be reflected in how we handle money. Money is the barometer, how we handle money, others and ours, of our spiritual state. Jesus put it like this in verse 10 and 11. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. How many of you have heard that scripture before? Applied, I have, yeah. How many of you knew that was applied to money? He says yeah. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? We cannot separate our spiritual life from money because the two are intimately connected. And when we are mishandling money, church, it is a sign of spiritual sickness. And so if you have spiraling debt, because you just can't seem to rein in those purchases, it's a spiritual problem. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is not operating. That fruit of self-control and contentment in God is not operating. So you are being driven by an appetite to get more stuff, which God is not giving. That's why there's debt. Very important. Withholding your tithe, it's a spiritual issue. That tenth that we give to God of the 100% that is His anyway, it's not a, a problem with doctrine. It's not a problem with the church. It is a spiritual issue of faith. 
where you're having to decide, who am I trusting as my provider? And when tithes start to be withheld, there is a spiritual issue right there. The other is how we use other people's money, particularly our employers. Do we come to work late? Do we leave early? Do we take extended lunch breaks? How are we managing what we are being entrusted with by our bosses? Don't separate how you live at work from your spiritual life. The way we steward money is a reflection of where we are spiritually. And the fourth is how we use our employees' money. Are we paying people a mere pittance? Not paying them the correct wages, withholding wages. It happened to us recently. We employed a builder for the ridge. We had a phone call on the Monday when the project was done. The guy refused to pay his laborer and just said, if you come near me, I'll kill you. Let me tell you, if you are a businessman here this morning and you are withholding pay, you will not be in trouble with the law, you'll be in trouble with the Lord. Because how we steward our money is a direct impact or reflection of where our hearts are. And friends, not managing money well brings us into conflict with the Lord. Michael Eaton puts it like this. He says, where there is no financial honesty... There is no approval from God. The next point of why Jesus makes it so important of how we handle money is how we handle money will indicate whether we are able to cope with greater responsibility. Notice this in verse 10 and 11. It says, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. Here it is. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? So I ask you the question this morning. Who would like promotion in the kingdom of God? It's not a bad thing. Who of you wants a greater level of the Holy Spirit being poured out in your prayer life, in scripture reading, in your conversations, who of you want a sense of the hand of God shaping your very present world in such a way that it is getting bigger, wider, more exciting, and fuller in Him? I want that. Let me tell you guys, if you want that, one of the greatest tests is how you're handling your money. Because that is such a an important part of stewardship. And it's a daily test. What he puts in your hand daily and how you steward that determines whether you're up for promotion. Artie Kendall puts it like this. God is watching. Choosing a path of honesty in the whole of life puts you in a good place for the promotion of the Lord. Almost there. The next point as to why we handle money and how we do it being so important is it will determine how we enter into heaven. This for me was the most groundbreaking discovery of this whole parable. In Luke chapter 16, verse 9, it says, And I tell you, 
Make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. What is Jesus saying there? Is he saying you need to manage your money so that you're popular? No. He says how you steward money will have an eternal impact on the lives around you. Can I put it to you as a question? When you get to heaven, will there be people grateful to, the God, to God because of how you used your wealth on earth? Do you know what the amazing truth about this parable is? Is one of the honors of the Christian who gives his wealth or her wealth to the work of the Lord here on earth will be the moment in heaven when we are welcomed in by those who are praising God for you. And the weight of this for me, the privilege of knowing that I might not be able to go with Joe to that North African country. I might not be able to partner with those who are taking the gospel in ministries, not only in this church, in this city, but in the world. Every time I give towards that, I'm creating opportunity for God to let lives be encountered with the gospel and be saved. And in that moment, the record in heaven is going to be every allocation of faithful giving, not just the tenth of the tithe that comes to the house, but over and above it, a generosity for the Christian will be the roll call of honor of people praising God welcoming you in and saying, I'm so thankful to the Lord for your generosity because he used your wealth that I might find Jesus. That is the opportunity for you right now. And so I want to ask you this morning, spouses, sit down together and say, are we honoring the Lord with our money? Is the 10th coming in? Because I tell you, the blessing that comes from Monetary obedience is the overflow of blessing that comes through spiritual fullness in the Lord. It comes through this amazing sense of having the right place of God in our lives, of saying, I'm monthly going to say, I follow the Lord. He's the one who looks after me. He will give me enough. But secondly, sit down together, whether you are married or a single person, and ask yourself, how in my capacity, small or big, if you've got a lot, this is a big responsibility to steward. If you've got a little, you still have the same responsibility. How are we giving so that the gospel can reach those that we can't get to physically? How are we using what God has given us this side of the grave to steward for eternity? And I need to ask the question again to you today. I have to ask this of myself. Is how motivated are we by money? I'm a pharmacist. I get paid per hour. It's very tempting to do a few extra hours so that I can have a bit more in the bank, so I can feel a bit more secure. But over the years, the Lord has had to deal with me and he still has to, because I know if you say yes to money, you have to say no to God. You can't say yes to both. And in order to live in the fullness of what Jesus has for you and me, it is saying yes to saying, Lord, I will embrace enough. 
I will live in your supply of my need, and I'll surrender the want for you to decide. And today, some of us are maintaining lifestyles that leave zero space for God. You are sacrificing a yes to the Lord if you're saying yes to money. How much is enough? Have you decided that in your heart? It's an important conversation in your marriage and in your walk with the Lord. So, <laughs> I leave you with this. If you're like me, I know, I stand before you today knowing that there are areas where I have not represented Jesus and God's reputation well. And that's the same for you this morning. There are some relationships in this room you have to go and restore for the sake of God's reputation. There are things that some of us here are doing to our bodies. We have to stop. The way we are relating to our possessions, we have to come back to a place where we say, is God being honored here? But the blessing of this parable is it's about a guy who's blown it already. <laughs> and he has a period of mercy. My friends, your books have not been called in yet. You're not in heaven. And if God is putting a finger on anything this morning, you've got time. Don't waste it. And the encouragement is, remember the master in this parable, he is generous. He is tender-hearted. He's merciful. He's a master willing to cancel debt. And some of us owe God a lot. <laughs> and this morning, you need to know, you can recover quickly. He's a God of mercy. You just get up. Nothing's changed in your position. His goodness is for you. He's a merciful master. Get up. Go make that change. Go change that habits. Get rid of the stuff that's hindering you. Come before God and let him in all the pieces of your life Examine this question, how am I bringing God honor and glory? Lord, how is your reputation being advanced in all of my relationships, in all the spaces of my life? I want to live for you and I want to steward what I have well because I want to be qualified for the true riches. I want more in you. And what's at stake is just a mediocre life that carries no weight for eternity. But when God in his generosity is saying, church, heaven is available for you. The glory of God is waiting to honor you for faithfulness. You have a window of opportunity. Let's make use of it. And you'd be so encouraged that God's mercy is with you. You stumble, you get up. You sin, you get up. You believe in the love of the Father for you. That in Christ, He cancels every debt. The blood of Jesus is enough to shape and form 
and prosper a man who's even said, I have blown it. I have no hope. I've got no hope of restoration. I tell you today, what God can do through the blood of Jesus is keep the Christian forever at his best time, at his worst time, so that he gets to glory and has a qualification for honor. Over and over again. And this morning, I'd like us just to close our eyes. This morning, I believe the Lord is speaking here. And what we're about to do is take communion, and it's going to be served to you this morning. But God is here, He's here. And he's calling you. And he's saying, will you bear my name? Will you bear my name? Because I'm with you. I'm with you. Will you take courage, not in yourself, not in your track record, but what you're about to take in your hand. Will you take courage in what I've done for you in Jesus? You are about to tangibly experience the mercy of God. So that when it touches your lips, you are tasting the goodness of God in Christ Jesus to you. And what you are tasting is literally the symbolism that no matter where you are right now, Christ is enough for you. You might be saying, I've got to go back to the workplace and I'm dealing with a situation where I'm just so angry. I don't know what to do. My friend, when you take communion this morning, you are taking and drinking and acknowledging and saying, Christ is with me. His mercy is enough for me to stand in a way that I can bear the reputation of the Father well in this situation. There's that relationship that you just can't seem to solve, or there's some impasse you just can't get through, or there's some financial need, or whatever it is this morning that you are facing. When you take the cup and when you taste the bread, you are saying, God's mercy in Christ is enough for me to stand. For some of us this morning, you have been lying down flat on the face. You've just gone, I, I need to be restored with the Lord. Here is your moment in communion is you are literally saying, Lord, I receive mercy. I receive your tenderness to me. I receive your forgiveness in Christ Jesus for me. But I must say this morning that the cup and the bread is only for the Christian. And you need to come to a place before you take it, if you are not sure, if you are saved, and what I mean by that is if you're not sure if you've ever asked Jesus for forgiveness of sin and made him your only hope, if you are unable to come to that place now in confessing that to the Lord and calling upon his name, then let the cup and the bread pass by. This comfort of mercies, mercies on offer to the one who wants it. And if you're not in that place yet, that's fine. You let it pass by. But if that's you, you take it for the first time with faith. And you say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
trusting you for the cleansing and forgiveness of my sin. So Ali's going to come up where you are in this moment. Let's stay focused on Jesus. You're going to be served the elements, hold on to them. We'll eat and drink together.